Um, we talk about the Greenbush community a fair bit. If you have not uh, taken some time to drive through or pray through or walk through or whatever, I encourage you to do that. Um, it's a lot of different, like there's homes of you know people who have lived there for decades and uh, forever, and then there's businesses and there's renters and there's all sorts of um, things there. So there's a lot of life happening in that community, and we want to continue to pray that God would bless them and um, that they would know that they are loved. Um, so thank you, Bradley, for leading us. Um, I'm going to start off this week's message with a bit of um, uh, a grudge um, that I have on a movie that I just recently saw. I, I don't go to movies anymore, mostly because I forget to. Um, and I'm always like, oh, that looks like an amazing movie. And then I forget like how to access it. I don't know what happens, but there's a disconnect there. So my friends and I um, saw that there was going to be a Whitney Houston movie. And we were like, we are, oh, these are college friends of mine. And we all used to sing to choir together. And I was like, we're, we're going to that, right? Like, So we all met in Chicago. And we went to this movie. Um, and it was not good. <laughs> it was not good. Um, and my friends and I still can't quite get over it. And so um, <laughs> as we debriefed the situation, one of them so accurately laid this truth bomb on us. It was like watching a Wikipedia page with music. <laughs> she was right. There seemed to be attempts at some continuous threads and themes, but because they just threw everything in, from her teens to her death, it was a mess. And so by throwing everything in, you lost the most important things. You lost the threads, which was a real shame because Whitney is a dang legend and ain't nobody ever going to sing the national anthem like she did in 1991. Come on, right? Tell me you were there. Thank you. It was 32 years ago, so that may be missing some of you. <laughs> I was 14 years old and living back home in western New York, which, by the way, our hometown heroes were in that Super Bowl. They did not win it, but they might this year. Who am I talking about? Thank you. So we'll see. Go Bills. Um, I'm, as a western New Yorker, I'm obligated to say that. <laughs> Go Bills. Uh, my family would be so proud. So when you tell a story, you write with a direction in mind, which I think the people who wrote the Whitney Houston story forgot. You keep it focused, and the ideas and the elements are written to support that story. We see this in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been working our way through this, um, through this book. The writer wasn't giving an account and just simply listing events. He was telling a story. And so when thinking about the author writing a narrative, it makes sense that they would make intentional literary choices for what they're wanting to convey. In the case of this uh, gospel, it was critical to the writer to get this stuff written down and to tell you a specific story of Jesus that mattered at that time. It was not going to serve the narrative well to tell you everything, so choices were made to tell you some things, key things. And we see this so well stated in the Gospel of John at the end of chapter 20. The last thing John says is, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are record, recorded. The things he wrote are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was John's directive, to lead you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he chose stories to build a narrative that he wanted you to hear. He tells you that. And Mark does the very same thing. To understand the scriptures we'll be looking at today, I want to talk about what Mark's objectives were first, because I want us to hear his intentions, his why behind the scenes that he chose. The book opens with a prologue. That's what books open with, a prologue. Let me set things up. In chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, the passage establishes Jesus as the Son of God and that God approves him as his Son, who is able to speak with authority on God's behalf with the proof that Greg pointed out a few weeks ago, being the dove descending on him at his baptism. These two points, therefore then, allow Mark to set up his key themes. Jesus is the way. That shows up constantly through Mark's gospel. That there is a coming kingdom of God. So this then directs the readers to know that Jesus, son of God, is the way to God's kingdom. The book holds true to these themes through all three parts. It's broken down into three parts. And so Mark had to establish this first, because with this established, the reader can then move forward to the first part of the book, which focuses on Jesus's activity in Galilee. So we're going to be in chapters two and three today. We're not quite at reading the scripture together, but this is where we will be landing. I want to give you a little bit of context. The writer of Mark highlights five stories of conflict that we're going to go through. These are run-ins that Jesus had with the local religious authorities. This will, incidentally, also be foreshadowing what's to come in part three of Mark's book with, that leads to the conflict that Jesus had with higher-up authorities that led to his death. And so because of what's coming... The writer needs to quickly establish very early this foundation for Jesus' authority being from God and that he was the way to the kingdom of God. Mark had to set this up immediately. Why? I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about that. This book was written in somewhere between 60 and 70 common era. Jesus was about 50 or so years to about uh, 30 years prior to that. There was already a very present kingdom that the readers were living in called the Roman Empire. You might have heard of it. And that empire was hard at work keeping its citizens aligned with their leadership and their structure. When there is an oppressive empirical power at the top of the food chain, there are no unobserved small corners of that empire that go unnoticed. That people are just happy and carefree and living their lives completely detached from that empire. Oppression begets oppression. Occupation begets occupation. Overlording begets overlording. It exists this way because the structure must be held up. The system does not remain the system without the understructure. Rome was really serious about this. So even though Jerusalem 
is far away from the center of the empire in Rome, Rome was pretty aware of it still. So in the year 66, a revolt against Roman rule broke out and Jewish revolutionaries took control of Jerusalem. This is about the time of the gospel being written. They deposed the Roman Empire-appointed high priest. You see how that works? Oh, that the empire like, put in a high priest into um, the local situation. And instead, they took that guy out and put in their own. So the, the revolt at the local level from the Jews, at scale, was a local militia that took on a literal empire. It's a moving idea we love an underdog story. But, to no surprise, Rome was not going to just be cool with that. War immediately followed. Rome sent several legions to Jerusalem to crush the revolt. And I promise you, when I say several, that was a small portion of what they had available to keep their empire under their control. So they just sent this faction out to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, in, the 70, in 70, was reconquered by the empire. Rome was not going to only just retake the city. They were going to make sure to remind Jerusalem and any for whom the jury may have still been out that Rome was in charge. And don't you dare try that again. They destroyed both the city and the temple. This temple that every Jew held sacred and as their spiritual home, was destroyed. But this was not only unthinkable to the first century Jews that the temple could be destroyed, it was unimaginable. It was sacred, and Yahweh's dwelling place, how could it be destroyed? Rome took careful steps to show that their kingdom was bigger than this kingdom of God that was being talked about. Rome didn't care if people believed in the kingdom of God so long as it wasn't bigger than the empire. They just... We're not going to let anything depose them. So the stories, in the, uh, stories highlighted in the conflict stories of Mark created relatable micro-narratives to the broader one that the readers were living in as a way to understand how to respond to earthly authorities and power, religious and political, how to orient themselves towards Jesus' voice, and how to live in a way that reflected the coming kingdom. It was really purposeful. And so this was the context at the time, the earthly empires in juxtaposition with the kingdom of God, the authorities on earth and the approved authorities or, and the approved authority of Jesus as the son of God. And remember, Mark was real intentional about setting up the structure that understood Jesus is authority, speaks on behalf of God, he is the way to the eternal kingdom. Do you see why he had to set that up real fast? And so I tell you all this before reading the passage because this is how the readers of the book would have experienced it. They didn't have the other Gospels. They didn't have all these epistles running around. They weren't ubiquitous yet. Their historical context influenced how they read the book. Again, they didn't have, they didn't have the Bible and the New Testament as a whole to consult and to work with and see how the whole arc was showing up. They did not have it. And so... The stories and the accounts, they didn't have them in their hands. And so it may surprise you um, when I talk about context and why it's important. Uh, we here, 
um, as we read the Bible, we read it as 21st century people living in America. We are detached from the original meaning with the history we know, our definitions and unconscious biases. Um, and we live in a nearly oversaturated experience of cultural Christianity here, which often does not line up with the Bible or what Jesus himself said, um, and has from time to time also held up empirical systems. Uh, and what I'm saying is context matters and knowing the difference between how we read the scriptures as 21st century people living in America versus what the people experienced in 66 Common Era when they first read the Book of Mark experienced. There is a detachment and what we know, what we can learn about them matters. It changes how we approach the, the passages. What I just shared with you may inch us a little bit closer to what first century Jews and the followers of Christ might have heard when reading uh, the Gospel of Mark and these stories. So I am going to read through these stories. We're not going to stand today, but I ask that you give the scriptures your full attention. If you do need a Bible, you are welcome to grab one from the cabinet in the hall. It's the thing that right when you walk in the door, it's, um, that's where you can get them. And if you even need to get one right now, you're welcome to do that. Um, I also welcome you to take some notes as we go. Uh, as we go along, we will look for places where Jesus spoke with authority, where earthly authorities took issue, and where Jesus led people in the direction of the kingdom. So I'm going to start in Mark 2. And this is story one. When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come from home, or he had come home, excuse me. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above. Above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is Jesus speaking with godly authority. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the earthly authorities taking issue. Their structure is threatened. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. This is Jesus showing the way of the kingdom. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority, notice Mark pointing this out, on earth, to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed people, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Notice that people are shifting their attention to God's kingdom by way of Jesus. Story 2, verse 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Again, Jesus speaking with godly authority. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here are earthly authorities taking issue. The structure is being threatened. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus shows the way of the kingdom. Story three. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but not yours? Earthly entities take issue. Things are stirred up. Common structures threatened. Jesus shows the way to the kingdom. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one, sews a patch of uns- no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus both speaks with godly authority, and he points the way to the kingdom. Story four. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Earthly authorities take issue. Their structure is threatened. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated, consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Jesus shows the way to the kingdom and speaks with godly authority. Last story. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because their earthly structures had been threatened. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus is showing the way to the kingdom. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Jesus acts with godly authority. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Earthly authorities take issue, their structure is threatened, and just like Rome, they will not only stop the threat, but they will destroy it. For the first hearers, I think this would have offered a few things. Strangely enough, I think it would have offered them encouragement that their current struggles as followers of Christ within a system that was built by earthly powers, that their struggles were not for nothing, and that there was a hope on the other side of it. There was something beyond this that was bigger and more real. To the first century Roman civilians, 
just like the temple, it would have been unthinkable that their empire would end in a fizzle just a few hundred years later, only to be distant history to a church of Christ followers 16 to 1700 years later in Rock Island, Illinois. All empires fall, every last one of them. God's kingdom remains. It would have given them a guide as well. Each of those stories had a very specific structure to them. Jesus was shown as the godly authority. Power structures were threatened. Jesus showed the way to the kingdom. So follow the voice of Jesus, walk in his way, and it will lead to this everlasting kingdom. I think Mark was trying to encourage them. There is a way forward. Mark's gospel still has the same message for us today. Follow the voice of Jesus. Walk in his way, and it will lead to this everlasting kingdom. What do we do with it? I think that these are good guideposts to check in with along the way. Because I don't think history has changed much. People are still people. And we are still building our empires. The Roman Empire is no longer here, but empires have not ceased. We build our own empires all the time with power structures and the systems meant to uphold them. Sometimes they are big and blatant. Sometimes they are quiet and people don't like to talk about them. When we build kingdoms without God as the head, they will turn into oppressive empires with structures built to maintain them. Because we don't know what to do with power. <laughs> to live on this earth, but be a Christ, to be a follower of Christ, uh, the gospel of Mark's narrative, um, his focus helps us. So in all things, and am I letting the voice of authority in my life belong to the Son of God? As Jesus speaks to me, am I listening well? Is my ear turned and tuned in? Am I paying attention to the voice of Jesus above all other things? Or am I confused by what I'm hearing and the directions it's pulling me in? Am I putting trust in it? Am I letting God, as he speaks to me in Jesus and in the Spirit, am I letting it be an authoritative voice that is trustworthy? We talk about what it means to listen to the Spirit here at this church a lot. It's a part of our blueprint. We talk about it in week four of community tables. We had a sermon about it in the fall. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, it is a part of our structure here is learning how to listen well. And so, again, am I listening to the voice of Jesus as it's been approved by God to speak authoritatively in my life? And I don't mean authoritatively in a lording over way. I mean in a way that is life-giving, in a way that knows me and knows the deepest part of who I am, that it is a voice I can trust because it is full of love for me. And it is full of love for us. So that's first. Am I letting the voice of Jesus, am I listening to it? Am I listening for it? 
And then in all things, am I following it? Am I following Jesus as the way? Just as Mark established, he wanted to establish that this, that this voice is the way to go. Jesus is the way. So sure, maybe I hear the voice, but am I going? Am I doing? Is my life lived in the way of Christ? The idea of rabbis in the old tradition was that as disciples, you are, the idea is that you're covered in the dust of the rabbi because you're following behind. And that the dust that's kicked up by the rabbi, you are, you're walking so closely to the teacher that you're covered in the dust of the rabbi. Am I listening and then following and taking action? Am I walking in the way of Jesus? And in all things, am I living a life of kingdom values? Am I living like I belong to the kingdom of God? Am I living in a way that has, that has so clearly followed the way of Jesus that the only direction it can take me is the kingdom? You might find that as you check in with these guideposts, you yourself begin moving outside the walls of commonality to somewhere other somewhere potentially uncomfortable. You might find that as you check in with these guideposts, you yourself begin moving outside the walls of cultural Christianity into spaces that the historical American church or even the tradition you grew up with or even other Christians that you know may not understand. You may find that the way Jesus leads you will subvert and dismantle structures that want to be upheld. Structures that you, yourself, I, myself, may have unintentionally upheld. It can feel unsettling. Because when we hear the voice of Jesus, and we follow it in the kingdom's direction, and then we find ourselves living out kingdom values, they're not always convenient or comfortable and they don't always make sense to the largest group of people. So you may find that listening to the voice of Jesus in your life, following in its way into the kingdom, leads you into some conflict. Listening and following Jesus as the way to life in the kingdom might have us asking ourselves some more questions. Check in with that discomfort. Ask yourself, am I listening to the voice of Jesus? Or am I trying to reconcile Jesus' voice with what these voices are telling me, and am I trying to make them match? We do that a lot to make things make sense and more comfortable. Because to follow the voice of Jesus, though, is filled with love and intention for our good. We may not be living in kingdom values when we start, and it's going to pull us away from that, and that can be uncomfortable, and it may not make sense. So it may lead to some conflict there. But as you also follow in the way, as God leads you into stunning and beautiful purpose for your life, you may find that it leads you in one way from another thing, and that may be uncomfortable, and it may not make sense, and it may... You may be one of the pillars that's moving away from the structure that had been upheld, and it starts dismantling when you start moving away. 
And it's a good thing, but it's hard. And then as you find yourself pulling in the values of the kingdom, when we sing the song at your house, I think that song is, it moves me because it's so full of what I think the table of the Lord looks like and the house of God looks like. Where we're invited in and we're shaped and loved and cared for and light shines on us and you are welcomed as you are, that doesn't always check out for some people when power structures are often things that keep people out. And so following the way of the kingdom may produce some conflict that way as well. However, Mark's encouragement was, empires will fall, the kingdom of God remains. And it is there. It is always there, regardless of what empire is standing. So be encouraged. This system will fall. And the kingdom of God will remain. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that as we sit in presence with you, you would help us hear you. And when you speak to us, God, it is a voice of love. It is a voice that knows us and approves of us. You see us as your kids. And so I thank you for that. And as we listen, and as we grow in our various levels of trust with you, because that's a process for all of us, I'm grateful, God, that when you invite us to follow you, you don't mandate it, but you invite us. I'm thankful that when you invite us to follow you, um, that you are going to be responsible with that and us. Um, you are not asking us to follow us, to chain us and yoke us with more oppressive systems, <laughs> but you are, um, that your way leads to freedom and it leads to life. Yeah. And God, as we move into the kingdom and live in kingdom values, what we will find is that we may still be chained by the systems that we're coming from, and we may decide ourselves, that person doesn't belong here, or that shouldn't happen, or that's not the way of it. And I'm grateful that in your kingdom, <laughs> you are dismantling those systems and unshackling all of us from them so that we can live in your kingdom in freedom and love and offer it to others. But there is discomfort, and there may be conflict, and we ask for your... We ask for your help with that. And we ask for grace with each other when we are all on different journeys for that. And, um, and we need to be thoughtful of that truth. I'm grateful, God, that empires do fall and that you remain. 
So with these things in mind, lead us, help us follow, and we will look to you and trust. Amen.